In this session, we're going to talk about one of my most favoriteest things. We're going to talk about genetics. Okay, I don't think you heard me. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, I cannot believe my good fortune. How great is this? I come to church. I'm going to hear about Jen. You're speechless. I can see it in your faces. So let me, so let me try this again. In this session, we're going to talk about genetics. Okay. You, you know, that's the reaction I get a lot. It always takes a couple of seconds to sink in because you're just overcome with a transport of emotion. You can't believe I'm just, this is, this is more like I can stand. This is like cooler than like cake and ice cream. I'm going to talk about genetics. We're going to deal with what the Bible has to say about genetics. This is what I was taught when I was an undergraduate. Three billion years ago, the earth was covered by vast oceans, just a pot of chicken soup. Chemicals bumped together. Poof! The first simple life form assembled itself. You know what I put on the test they gave me? Poof, the first life form assembled itself. I made an A on that test. I said, I'm on to something here. Then over the next three billion years, through processes of natural selection, lightning striking the chicken soup and the moon tide and the gravitational field, things got more complex and more complex and more complex. And finally, life forms you know, slithered onto the earth. And over billions of years, here we are. You know, I put on the test, so life forms over billions of years and slithering and natural selection and lightning striking the chicken soup and moon's tides. And that, that's what evolution is. We are essentially rearranged pond scum. We are a chemical accident. We are the result of chemicals bumping together over billions of years. The secrets of evolution are time and death. Time for the slow accumulation of favorable mutations and death to make room for new species. If evolution is true... Do you know what your family tree is? This. Millions of years of death, 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 and more death. It's called survival of the fittest. Strong creatures survive. Weak creatures fall by the wayside. I mean, you know, you know what natural, if you, you've heard of the concept survival of the fittest? I mean, is that, is that a familiar concept? Well, let me give you an example. In Africa, who lives longer? Fast gazelles or slow ones? Fast ones. Slow ones become... Lunch. See, this is not hard. The, the creatures that are more fit, more favorable, tend to propagate those traits to subsequent generations. And what the world says, you give this process long enough, one kind of creature can change into another kind of creature. And thus they develop things like this. This is the geologic time scale. And we know this is a very scientific chart. You know how we know that? It's got scientific words on it. Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, Mississippian, Jurassic, Cretaceous. It's got a lot of scientific words on it. <clears throat> and if you've got really good eyes right over here on this column on the left, you'll see the millions of years. Like the Devonian was supposed to have been 60 million years. The Permian, 50 million years. Jurassic was 46 million years. If it's got scientific words in the millions of years on it, it must be a scientific chart. Now, what this is trying to tell us is over these <clears throat> untold millions of years, You've got relatively simple creatures that become more complex and more complex and more complex. Like these creatures evolve into these creatures, evolve into these creatures, evolve into, and then man gets here. Things go from simple to complex. Now, is there any place in the world you can go and dig down, you know, take a, a mile swath down in the earth's core and get the, the geologic column exactly like this? No, it is relatively like this. It is relatively simple creatures and relatively more complex and relatively more complex. Now, when I say relatively, because you see these creatures on the bottom, they're not simple. 
They're very complex creatures. But the thing is, we are more complex than an amoeba. I mean, I'm always amused when people talk about a simple one-cell creature. Folks, I've studied the cell at a postdoctoral level. It ain't simple. It's unimaginably complex. But we, there's more information in a human body than there is in an amoeba because I mean, we have 200 cell types in the human body, so things get more complex. But you can go to the Grand Canyon and go to the lower layers, and you find some relatively simple creatures. You go to the top layers, you find those same creatures there. So it's not always sorted just like this. But the, but the concept is things go from relatively simple to more complex to more complex. Now, this creature on the bottom left, we'll start with it. Let's just say it was supposed to evolve into the creature directly above it. Now, that's, that's just for the sake of this discussion. That creature is going to evolve into that creature. Now, if you go to the fossil record, you actually find fossils of all the creatures that are illustrated here. You find fossils of the creature on the bottom left and the creature just above it. You know what you don't find? All the in-between forms. All those steps that go from the one on the bottom to the next one. They're called transitional forms. You don't find all these, you know, bazillion steps in between. You find two, the two fully formed creatures. You don't find the intermediate forms. So what the world says is we see this sorting that goes from simple to relatively more complex, relatively more complex. So one creature must have evolved into another. What I'm going to tell you is that's not what happened. What I'm going to tell you is this. What you see in God's world really does agree with what you read in God's word. God created everything in how long? Six days, six ordinary 24-hour days. According to God's word, how do things reproduce? After his or after their kind. Which means when cows reproduce, they have? When dogs reproduce, they have? When turtles reproduce, they have? When cats reproduce, they unfortunately have? You see, this is not hard. Your first question of the day, could you have seen this in the Garden of Eden? Prove your answer. I've heard a yes, I've heard a no. Anybody? I've got, I have the absolute answer, but you have to prove it. You're right up to a point. He, no, 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 you're on the right track. He says no, and he came so close to the right answer, he can't imagine. You could not have possibly seen this in the Garden of Eden. It could not have happened. Why? Simply this. When God finished his creative activity, he said it was what? There is no way there could be poodles there. There is no way God looks on a poodle and calls it very good. It is a mutated, degenerative, worthless little mutt. And this comes from a guy who owns two sheets who's in a dachshund. Let me tell you, there is no way God looks on a poodle and calls it very good. You could not have seen this in the Garden of Eden. Could you have seen this in the Garden of Eden? I would say yes. You have the original dog kind, the original cat kind, and the original cow kind. The universe displays incredible variety. Consider snowflakes, 
Everyone is different. Every cloud is different. Every planet, every galaxy is different. This variety is just as visible among organisms. Every individual is different from every other individual. Every giraffe has a unique pattern. Every zebra has distinct stripes. Every dog has a distinct personality. And every human is different from every other. Despite all this variety, it's easy to see which of these belong in the same group. As different as deer are from each other, we still recognize them as deer. As different as finches are from each other, we still recognize them as finches. The same is true of plants. There are thousands of species of orchids and thousands of species of grass, but we still call them orchids and grass. Modern scientists call each of these groups families. The Bible gives a clue about the origin of such variety. Genesis 1 says that God created distinct organisms after their kind. In fact, he uses this phrase, after its kind or after their kind, ten times in the creation account. What does the biblical term kind refer to? It is possible that in most instances, these kinds are the groups of similar species that scientists recognize today as families. If so, God made an orchid kind, a grass kind, a deer kind, a finch kind, and many others. Within these kinds, he placed potential for amazing variety. The creation of similar things with differences demonstrates that God loves variety and God loves unity. The best explanation for this is God's very nature. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one, loves both diversity and unity. So God creates the original kinds of creatures for 1,750 years or so. Creatures reproduce after their kind. Dogs have dogs, cats have cats, cows have cows, dinosaurs have dinosaurs. Then there was a problem. God led two of every kind of animal, seven of some, to a man named Noah. What was about to happen? The flood. The creatures aboard the boat were supposed to do what? Repopulate the earth after the flood. So they get on board what? Noah's Ark. When the Ark lands, they do what? They get off. They get off and start reproducing. Here's your second question for the day. Do animals change? Ah, not quite as sure of that question. Do animals change? Huh. Hmm. I've heard yes, no, and maybe, and a perhaps. You're not too sure of yourself. Let's just say the dogs get off the ark. And they reproduce. Their offspring are what? Do not overthink these questions, folks. These are simple questions. I will do the hard ones. These dogs reproduce in their offspring or what? And these dogs reproduce in their offspring or what? And it goes on and on and on. Do you have what? Lots of dogs. Is this evolution? No, it's just what? Dogs. You start off with two dogs, you get all these different varieties of dogs. It's amazing, the variety among dogs. It's incredible. It's stupendous. It's amazing. Here's one of my favorites, the raccoon dog. Is that a dog turning into a raccoon? No, it's just a funny looking what? Dog. Don't overthink the questions. These are not hard. This is where we get to talk about 
hold your applause to the end. We get to talk about genetics. This is what I know you're excited, so just try to keep yourself in your seats. We're going to use a very simple example. Three traits, A, B, and C. Now, the way it works is we get half our genetic material from mom and half from dad. And we're going to use A, B, and C as our example. Now, the convention is the dominant genes illustrated by capital letter, recessive gene by small letter. But it's very actually much more complex than this. You have combinations and additive genes. You have incomplete dominance. So kind of bear with me. We're going to try to make this relatively simple because if it were too complex, I don't have enough screens. So we don't want you to lose you in this. This is a simple example. These two dogs are going to reproduce. Here are two of their offspring. Spring. The first offspring gets a big A from mom and a big A from dad. A big B from mom and a big B from dad. A big C from mom and a big C from dad. One of its siblings gets the little A's, the little B's, and the little C's. Are these two dogs different? Yes. Are they still dogs? Yes. Do animals change? Do animals change into other kinds of animals? No, but animals do what? Change. This is not hard. Here's another one. Big A's and big C's, but there's a little B. <clears throat> is this dog different from the other two? Yes. Could there be a situation where there's no demonstrable difference between the dog on the bottom and the dog on the top, the one with all the big A's? It's possible. If this is complete dominance, you may not, the little B might not even be expressed. It may just be there. Sometimes, sometimes you don't see this. Sometimes, and let, but let's just say that this is an incomplete dominance. Well, okay, you could, you could, you could see the effect of the recessive gene. Here's another one: big B's, but little A and little C. Is that dog different from the other three? Yes. Is this still a dog? Yes. Do animals change? Yes. See, this is not hard. You get variations, and let's just say these are in fact. Uh, genes that code for, you know, physical characters, you know, long ears, short hair, color fur. So this could be a wolf, a dingo, a coyote, Asiatic wild dog, African wild dog. You do have different, you know, variations. You have different combinations of genetic material. So these dogs do change, but they change into what? Dogs. You see how easy this is? Isn't genetics fun? Hold your applause to the end. We're going to start off with two dogs. They have offspring and they have more dogs and more dogs and more dogs. So you get lots of dogs. But these dogs over time and because of different sorting the genetic material have different combinations. So these combinations or groups of dogs can wander off to different areas. And I'm going to show you in a minute why that's important. Here's another example. You've got uh, two dogs and they have medium length fur. So in this example, to have medium length fur, you have to have the, the L gene and the S gene. The gene for long fur and the gene for short fur. That combination in this example gives you medium length fur. So two dogs with medium length fur reproduce. Can they have an offspring with short fur? Sure. If they have an offspring that gets a short gene from both parents, you got a dog with short fur. Can they have offspring with long fur? The year, sure. You have the offspring to get the long fur gene from both parents, you can have long fur. Can they have offspring with medium length fur? Yeah. Yes, you get an L gene from one parent, S gene. You see, it's just sorting. But let's just say this process goes on and you have two long fur dogs that reproduce together. Can they have a short furred offspring? No. Why not? They don't have the gene for short fur. This is not rocket science. Work with me. Can they have an offspring with medium length fur? No, they do not have an S gene anywhere in their genome. They can only have offspring that have what? Long fur. Now, I'm really not sure how you refer to these types of generations in dogs. I mean, it's the parents, grandparents, and grandkids, or dogs, granddogs, and puppies. I don't know. But you got the grandparents, the parents, and the kids. Work with me here. 
Have you seen a change here? Are the grandkids different than the grandparents? How are they different? They have long fur. The grandparents have medium length fur. These dogs have changed. Here's the next question. Over this short process, in this example, have you gained or lost information? You've lost, you have the same total amount of genetic material, the same amount of DNA, but you've actually lost information. You've lost what we call variability. You no longer have a short fur gene. You have a change. These are still dogs, but in this example, you've actually lost information. <clears throat> Is this a bad thing? Not necessarily. This can actually be a good thing depending on your environment. The reason for that is something we call natural selection. Oh, you can't say natural selection. You're a Christian. You don't believe in real science. You don't believe in natural selection. I hear that all the time. That's nonsense. Natural selection was first described as a concept by a creationist named Edward Blythe 30 years before Darwin published Origin of the Species. Darwin actually had this man's writing in his own, in his own library, in his own files. The way it works is this. You have certain physical characteristics that give creatures a survival benefit in certain environments. For example, you have all these dogs that get off the ark, they reproduce. Dog, a certain group of dogs wander north. They do better if they have what? Long fur or short fur? Long fur. What happens if they have short fur? They get cold. What happens if you have a group of dogs that go south? They do better if they have long fur or short fur? What happens if they have long fur? <laughs> they get hot. They don't reproduce as well. What happens if a group of dogs wander to the forest? They do better if they have light colored fur or dark colored fur? Dark colored fur. Light colored fur. What happens? They can't find anything to eat and they very likely get eaten. Because they're very visible. You see, certain characteristics give you a survival benefit in certain environments. Those desirable characteristics tend to get propagated more effectively and more efficiently to subsequent generations. That's what natural selection is. So you can start off with the original kinds of creatures and you get sorting the genetic material based on environment. So sometimes this loss of variability can be good because you get sorting and it brings out, you know, make, makes more prominent these desirable characteristics. This is not really a hard concept. So you have all these dogs that wander around the area where the ark landed and they go to different areas and they have different survival benefits based on their characteristics, based on the particular combination of genes that they have. Now, does this really make sense in the world of science? Yeah, we can talk about this and we can make up these stories and yeah, you want to make a biblical point about everything, but does this really make sense scientifically? Actually, it makes perfect sense. The origin of the domestic dogs from wolves has been established. We examined the mitochondrial DNA sequence variation among 654 domestic dogs representing all major dog populations worldwide, suggesting a common origin from a single gene pool for all dog populations. Well, the geneticists themselves are saying, well, all dogs go back to a single gene pool. <clears throat> well, for a while... In the past decade or so, several groups of geneticists were proposing that dogs came from different populations of wolves. There were different sort of founder populations of wolves, and that's where ultimately all the different dogs came from. So they came from different populations, and that was promoted, and, and they pursued some information, pursued some you know genetic proof, if you will, for this concept for a number of years, and it just didn't pan out. Last year, another article came out that basically says all dogs came from a single dog population. Now, I mean, I love genetics and I love to study this, but this makes perfect sense because you know what it tells me? The Bible absolutely gives you this answer. All dogs go back to the original dog kind. 
So we would argue that the original dog kind would be like a wolf or dingo, some kind of husky dog. And over multiple generations, you have sorting the genetic material, so you get all these different varieties of dogs. Now, as you go down this scale, as you get all this, you know, variation within the kind, you're losing it, you're losing variability, you're losing information. And again, is this a bad thing? Not at all. Very frequently, this can be a good thing. This practically provides a survival benefit for the particular creature in that environment, but there's a limit to how far this goes. You know, you can only go so far when you sort genetic material. And again, you know, what's my proof? Poodles. <coughs> Poodles are the end of the line for dogs, right? Poodles are, in effect, the cul-de-sac of dogs. If a poodle loses any genetic information, it just ceases to exist. I mean, that, that, that's, that's as far down as dogs can go. You can't get lower. Than, some people have said chihuahua. I kind of go chihuahua poodle here. Yeah. But that's as far as it goes. So the original created kind wasn't like poodles. The reason I say that is because poodle basically has no genetic information at all. There is no known law of nature, no known process, and no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. The original chart we saw, the genetic uh, ge geologic column, goes from simple to more complex. If you go to simple to more complex, you have to add information or lose information. You have to add information. To go from a single-cell creature to man, you have to add information or lose information. There are over 200 cell types in the human body. To go from a single cell creature to man, you got to add information. There is no known process in nature by which information is generated spontaneously. Information does not come from nowhere. But the world says mutations, mutations. How many people saw the X-Men movies? I mean, a guy with spikes coming out of his hands, I never quite understood that. But nonetheless, the whole basis of the X-Men was mutations cause all these wonderful things. That, you know, mutations, mutations, mutations. Actually, mutations don't add information to the genome. Not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information to the genome. All point mutations have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information and not to increase it. The world appeals to mutations. You know, millions of years, mutations, 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 mutations add to the genome. Actually, most, the vast majority of mutations are neutral. Some are lethal. But no known mutation has ever been shown to add information to the genome. So you start off with, say, the original kind. you got all this variability. And over many generations, you have all this different variation within the kind. So you lose variability, you lose variability, then you get down to poodle, which has nothing. And then cats only have, like, gumballs or something. <laughs> And I'm going to show you how this works. Now, the thing, in the real world, you would really not get selection that goes down to the level of some of the purebred animals. Like, well, I've got, you know, uh, several Shih Tzus and my wife has a Dachshund. So the thing is, those kind of creatures are purebred creatures, and you don't tend to get that extreme level of selection in the real world. Because those creatures would not survive in the real world. I mean, a poodle, if it sits out on your front porch for too long, it can't get back in. It just dies. You know, you know, poodles are so fragile. If the kid down the street gets a head cold, you got to take your dog to the vet. Because the dogs are very fragile. And I'll give you an example. I've never been a pet person, as you've probably gathered during my conference. But I do have a wife and three daughters. So, again, my opinion means absolutely nothing. 
So a few years ago, my youngest daughter came and sat in my lap and put her head on my shoulder and looked at me with only the eyes that she has. And she said, Daddy, can I have a puppy? Well, needless to say, regardless of my 25,000-year stance on having no pets, we were immediately off to the dog breeder, and uh, we came home with Rosie, a little dapple dachshund, about that big. <clears throat> yeah, oh, I had to sell a kidney on Craigslist to pay for uh, Rosie. But... Um, but I had two, so I've got one left. It's all good. So anyway, the dog came home. And I will give Rosie credit for one thing. Rosie was a very perceptive dog. Rosie liked me best. <clears throat> because she knew I was the one with the job, okay? <laughs> Later, between, after the session, let me t- ask me about Rosie's kidney stones. Yeah, anyway, um, yeah, Ro- I should, my kidney stones have been treated so well. But nonetheless, so I'll come home with Rosie, and you know, we got a little dog bed, and I'm thinking, oh, my life has no meaning or purpose because I'm not got a dog in the house. So I'm thinking, I've been defeated, you know, one more time, my opinion doesn't mean I did, oh, woe is me. But my day was not going to get any better. My wife came up to me and said, honey, put this in the safe. I said, what, the dog? I mean, you know, it's not that valuable. She said, no, put this, it's paper. She handed me this manila envelope. And I said, what's this? She said, this is Rosie's birth certificate. And I said, my birth certificate's in the kitchen drawer next to the knives, forks, and spoons. <laughs> and you want me to put the dog's birth certificate in the safe? I mean, what's up with that? She said, no, you have to see this. I said, okay, I opened it up and pulled out this one of those computer, you know, it was back a few years ago when they still used dot matrix printers. It was like that accordion paper for the computer. It went about 12 pages and I went, my goodness, what is this? She said, it's Rosie's birth certificate. And I thought, well, this I got to see. So I opened up the top and it said, you know, AKC registered BR972-64, Rosie the too expensive dog, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And it said, this is Rosie's mother. La Petite Bourgeois Natividad Lafayette Napoleon. Yeah, and it gave this code number. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. And Rosie's father was Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Ivan the Terrible, Genghis Khan, you know, Frederick the Great, Mansur, whatever. And it had this number. And it had all this genetic, it, it basically had the whole genetic lineage of this dog. Because when you breed dogs, I mean, if you breed poodles or dachshunds or beagles or whatever, and you want these two dogs bred and they have puppies, you want to be assured that you know pretty, you know, significantly, you, you want to know the, the combination. There's not going to be a lot of variability there because you got a financial incentive to do that. So you you can breed dogs to the extreme where there's almost no variability. And that's what Rosie had, no variability. He was a sweet puppy, but, you know, dumb as a post. What are you going to do? But that's the thing. You can breed to the extreme levels. In nature, you're not going to get that extreme. I've got a friend who's a veterinarian who tells me that, you know, the most purebred animals, those are the ones he spends a lot of time taking care of because they're really not that hardy. See, when I was little, my sister had a dog named Toby. Toby was a mutt. Toby was one twentieth of 20 different dog breeds. Toby could run out in the street, get hit by a dump truck. It would go, roo, 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 come back in and eat. And kind of go, where'd this, where'd this tire track on my leg come from? And just like, I mean, you could have thrown Toby off the roof and eat here. You know, just come back and eat. You know, if, 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 a, if a poodle sees a Tamiflu commercial, it gets the flu. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> but, but that's the point. You get, the, you get to an extreme level. But see, out in the real world, that doesn't happen. So you don't get that extreme sorting. But that's just the extreme level of the selection process. 
The Bible needs to be the foundation of our thinking every year. We need to understand that we didn't start from simple and go to complex. When you look at real genetics in the real world, what you get is the process is running down. But that sorting can provide you know, survival benefits to creatures in certain environments. Which brings us to our next question. How many races are there? The right answer is one. You know what I was taught is when I was an undergraduate? I was taught there were four races. I was taught that by one of America's leading anthropologists. One of the most famous anthropologists in America. I took his class. It's all four. I've talked to other people who are undergraduate at the same time I, I was. They were taught three, four, five, six, or seven. <clears throat> How many races are there? One. Why are people taught there are multiple races? This. We evolved from ape-like creatures over the last three to five million years. You know, we went from sort of, you know, knuckle-dragging to semi-upright to almost upright to fully upright to human. Simple to more, to more advanced, if you want to put it that way. This is what we're taught. People evolved at different levels at different rates. And if that's true, this is true. <clears throat> and ladies, if that's true, this is true. But you know what the sad fact is? If that's true, this is true. Not all people groups are the same. We don't all look alike, do we? Are all people groups exactly the same? We have different physical characteristics. Certain characteristics are more prominent in certain people groups than others. But what you have to understand is if we evolve from ape-like creatures, not all people groups have evolved equally because all people groups could not have evolved to the same level at the same rate. And guess what? If you have group, people groups who've evolved to different levels at different rates, how many people groups can be the most evolved? One. And that people group feels itself perfectly justified in looking down on all those other people groups who aren't as evolved as we are. Now, let me say this before I go any further because somebody's going to misunderstand. Evolution is not the cause of racism. I mean, our ministry gets accused of you know, blaming everything in the world on evolution. That's not true. Evolution is not the cause of racism. You know what the cause of racism is? Sin. Pure and simple. Man's inhumanity to man has existed since the fall. However, evolution has been used as a scientific justification for racism more than any other concept in human history. Oh, Tommy, that's not true. You bet it's true. Here's a, this is a diagram from a biology textbook in 1927. On one side, you see the family of apes. On the other side, you see the modern races, the family of man. All people groups aren't the same. Well, Tommy, evolution hasn't been used to justify racism. Guess what? Stephen Jay Gould, the famous Harvard evolutionist, said it did. Biological evolution for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolutionary theory. One of the most famous evolutionists of our age says directly, Teaching and belief in evolution has fueled the acceptance of racist thinking. The right answer, how many races are there? There's one. You come to that conclusion simply because God's word's true. What people group is that? That's the Australian Aborigine. You know, there is one ministry that I'm aware of that says the Aborigines existed on earth before God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That they are a pre-Adamic race. Anybody think of the consequences of that kind of thinking? If you're a pre-Adamic race, you know something you can't be? Saved. 
Jesus went to the cross to save those who died in Adam. If you're on the earth before Adam, you're not a descendant of Adam. You don't share in Christ's redemptive work on the Think of that kind of thing. And the reason this ministry places the aborigine before their, their concept of when Adam and Eve were placed on earth is because they believe some of the secular sociologic records and stuff. And they say this culture goes back 45 or 50,000 years. That's nonsense. That's absolutely incorrect. The aborigine is fully human. And that's news to a lot of people over the last few decades. I've talked to a lot of folks who've told me that the aboriginals were closer to the apes. If you look at people groups through secular glasses, you've got some decisions to make. You look at people groups through biblical glasses, you come to right conclusions. Again, this is not hard. This is not rocket science. It's like you take a cake mix. Slight variation in cake mixes, you get different kinds of cakes, right? You have humans. You have different combinations, different, you know, combinations of different sorting the DNA. You get different physical characteristics. But guess what? Just like with dogs and cats and cows. Now, we're not animals. I don't mean that. But we have a similar genetic mechanism as, as we reproduce and pass genetic material to subsequent generations. But just like with other living things, when you, when you sort the genetic information, these people are still people. They're still humans. But there's differences. There's variation within the kind. You know, if you take any two people... And put their DNA in a blender. DNA to blender. And you compare it. The difference in any two human beings is two-tenths of one percent. As, as much as, you know, sometimes we differ in height or the way we physically look, the difference in any two human beings is two-tenths of one percent. Folks, that is insignificant. That's the difference in any of us. Now, certainly there are different people groups. You want to put it that way. There are Native Americans, there are Eskimos, there are people in China, you know, people that live in the Congo, there are Scandinavians. I mean, there are different people groups, different cultural groups. And they have different physical characteristics, you know, the general characteristics in the group. That You just see that. But guess what? All the people in all those groups are fully human. They're equally evolved. If you take... Uh, Three people who are Native American, for example, and you compare their DNA. And then you take one Native American, one Eskimo, and one person from China, and you compare their DNA. You know the differences, the amount of difference between, say, the Native American, the Eskimo, and the Chinese. The difference between people in different people groups is actually less than the difference among people within the same group. If you take three Native Americans and check their DNA, you're going to very possibly get a much wider variation than if you take one person from each of different people groups. See, the people start doing these comparisons. It's meaningless. It's insignificant. And these things that we call racial characteristics, you know, depth of skin tone, shape of earlobe, shape of eyes, straighter curly hair, thickness of lips, thickness of eyebrows, all those things that we judge people the most by. You know how much of our DNA codes for that? It's 0.012%. That is less than insignificant. But those are the things by which we judge people the most, their outward appearance. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. And I really hope that you will be kind and gracious. Because I know I'm opening myself up for some really vicious answers here. But I'm going for it anyway because I'm hoping you'll be kind. <clears throat> Let me ask you a question. What's the difference between me and LeBron James? Uh, 
Uh, no, it's way more than that. My answer is $674 million. That was number three. There's three things. That's three on my list. Thank you for getting that one right. That's the second one. He can dunk from the free throw line. Yeah, zero point, uh, yeah, that's point two percent. The difference is simply this. He's a foot and a half taller than me. He's a world-class athlete. And he's worth $678 million, and I work for a nonprofit ministry. That's it. But when people look at us, they go, those two guys are way different. No, we're not. The things that you're judging us by are 0.012% of our DNA. It's insignificant. Now, the overall difference is 0.2, but the things that you're seeing... 0.012% of your DNA. And that's how you're going to judge me. I mean, if you put me and LeBron James on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I'd not start, I, I, I would laugh too. But they're going to go, that's, those two are really different. No, we're not. Frankly, we're not different at all. Yeah, I mean, he can dunk and all that kind of stuff. But I promise you, if your heart stops, you don't want him around. You want me. I can do that. Yeah, I, I, I know when to shock you when not to. That's what I'm, I'm, I'm a professional. But see, that's the difference. So we have different gifts and capabilities, but there's no difference in me and LeBron James. But we're judged far differently. Why? Because of our appearance. So you start off with two people. I tell you what we'll do. We'll call them Adam and Eve. Just, just We'll call them Adam and Eve. And they have offspring, and they have offspring. Those people have offspring, and those people have offspring. And you get these different combinations of genetic material. And sometimes you get different combinations and different sorting. And, and, and you sort of think, well, Tommy, you're getting all this sorting. You're making up all these stories. Can you think of a reason you get all this sorting? Can you think of an event in history that would lead to people, groups, wandering off together? That's how about, well, how about God confusing the languages and dispersing the people? Now, if you're going to wander off with a group of people, are you going to wander off with somebody you can understand or somebody you can't understand? I want to wander off. Let's have somebody to talk to, right? I mean, we'd sort of hang out together and talk. So you have people groups that wander off in different areas, basically, you know, probably going to sort themselves by language. And then within a few hundred years after the Tower of Babel, you've got the maximum onset of the Ice Age. You've got... People groups, they're genetically isolated, so they reproduce within the group. And over many years, over generations, they develop their own cultural norms and do's and don'ts and, you know, the, the cultural heritage, if you will. But also what happens is they continue to reproduce together. Physical characteristics become predominant in each group. Again, whether it's straight or curly hair, you know, depth of skin tone or thickness of lips or eye, you know, eyelid shape, those kind of things. Those things that we call racial characteristics are developed. And it really isn't racial at all. It's really more of a cultural or ethnic characteristic. There are differences in people, but we're all fully human. Scientists have actually done this calculation, and I don't know exactly how they come to this, but it's an enormous number. The number of atoms you can fit in the known universe is 10 to the 80th power. Now, folks, I don't care who you are. That's a lot of atoms. Okay? The number of electrons you can put in the known universe is 10 to the 130th power. Again, I don't care who you are, that's a lot of zeros. That's a big number. Do you know how many offspring two people can have before they have two exactly alike? Now, we're not talking about identical twins. That's splitting the side. I'm talking about if you have kids one at a time. Do you know how many offspring you can have before two people will have two identical offspring? It's 10 to the 2017th power. That's how much information is in our genome. 
Now, the thing that the evolutionist has to explain to us is, you know, because information is supposed to be, um, you know, preserved and passed to subsequent generations of desirable information. How come we've got that much excess information in our genome? I mean, nature over, you know, ever how many hundreds of millions of years has preserved this much information? Why? What would be the, what would be the incentive that nature would preserve that kind of information? That's nonsense. This, this alone is enough to kind of, you know, sumps the evolution where all this information come from. I mean, there's no, there's no survival benefit in preserving this amount of information, but that's how much information is in our DNA. How many skin colors do you see? One. One. All those skin colors are the same. How many skin tones do you see? Five. You know we all have the same skin color? You know LeBron James and I have the same skin color? Has anybody got a piece of paper? Anybody bring a notebook or anything? Anybody got a piece of paper I can borrow? Boy, what a bunch of slides. Nobody's taking notes. You're killing me. Well, I may just stop then. I mean, wow, that's, that's, that's cold. I'll take that. That's good. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll let, oh, you're memorizing? Oh, that's slow. That's good. I like it. He's memorizing. Oh, what a liar. I'm sorry. <laughs> but at least you tried, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, at least you tried to spare you. You know what I mean? Okay. Let me ask you a question. Like I said, the difference between me and LeBron James, we have the same skin color. Am I a white person? Am I a white person? Thank goodness. If I'm a white person, somebody better call a doctor quick. (laughs) Tell my wife the insurance policy is in the second drawer of the filing cabinet. I am not a white person. Is LeBron James a black person? Nope. Guess what? The primary pigment that's responsible for skin color is called melanin. LeBron James has more melanin than I. I have less than he does. We actually published an article some years ago, uh, a, a supporter of our ministry, who's a, a, he's, a, he's called a dermatopathologist. He's a pathologist, but he specializes in skin diseases. He actually did electron micrographs of skin samples from different cultural groups. You know the difference? The amount of melanin. All skin's the same except for the amount of melanin. I mean, some people have a few more melanocytes to make the melanin, but that's it. That's the difference. So you got this sort of range of skin tone, if you will. It's like if you go to your computer, and you know those color wheels, and you click on blue or something, and usually right next to it, it'll have, a, it'll have a bar to go from dark blue to light blue. Well, that's what this is. It's different depth of, 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 of the same color. It's not like yellow, brown, whatever. It's like a, you know, middle, it's like a brand, and you just get different depths of skin tone. So I'm not a white person, LeBron James, not a black person. And that leads to another question that gets me in trouble everywhere I go. What color are Adam and Eve? Well, let me tell you, the way we understand the inheritance of, of, of skin tone, and the last time I saw some research about this, they were talking about it somewhere between 16 and 21 different genes are involved in this. But the way we understand inheritance of skin tone, people who are light-skinned, when they reproduce together, they have offspring that are what? Light-skinned. People that are dark-skinned, when they have offspring together, they have offspring that are what? People that are middle brown, when they have offspring, they have a very wide range of skin tone in the offspring. Because we would argue that people who are middle brown still have more variability in the genes that control the depth of skin tone. So we would argue that Adam and Eve were middle brown. They would have a much wider range of skin tone in the offspring directly. You know, most people in our world today are still what we would call middle brown. Twins. One's white, one's black. 
Are one of these twins more evolved than the other? Things like this have baffled scientists, you know, evolutionists for years. It's like, wait a minute. Of course, now they understand it, but those who would argue that dark-skinned people aren't as evolved as lighter-skinned people. And I actually have heard that argument strongly in my lifetime. Is the darker-skinned child less evolved than the lighter-skinned child? I can't honestly remember which of those children were born first, which is kind of silly because they gestated at the same time. You know, who's the senior, who's the, you know, it's sort of like the Apollo 11, who got out of the capsule first, gets all the glory. So, uh, one parent's light skin, one star skin. Now, think about this. You're going to school one day, you're going to your Sunday school class, you're going to have show and tell. You're in a situation where you're uh, in some place where you're going to bring your model car. You're going to tell about your vacation. You're going to bring, you know, your favorite uh, model airplane or whatever. This is show and tell. This is something you can bring to show and tell. How I got a twin sister who's black. Everybody else is showing their put. This is my sister. I'm white. She's black. Which of those young ladies is the most evolved? See, the father's Jamaican. The mother's English. You got a darker skinned father, a lighter skinned mother. They're twins. I had a guy a few months ago ask me if these were identical twins. <laughs> now, in about two hours, that's going to be really funny. <laughs> I'm not often speechless, but I just kind of went, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just wasted an hour of my life. The guy just didn't get it. <laughs> Which one's more evolved? See, you've got to disconnect. Series of photographs of some young. I believe, this was, I believe, at an international school uh, here in D.C. or near here in D.C. I mean, um, which of these young ladies is the most evolved? Which one's the least evolved? Not too many years ago, there were lots of scientists who would tell you those young ladies on the bottom, particularly towards the bottom right, were far less evolved than the ones on the top left. And you know what that is? That's a lie from the pit of hell. Twelve beautiful young ladies, all fully human, all equally evolved, getting judged by the depth of their skin tone. Have you ever heard of Otabinga? Otabinga was a little guy about, there are very few people on the planet shorter than me, but he was. He was brought to America to be part of a World's Fair exhibit. And after the World's Fair was over, you know where they put Otabinga? They put Otabinga in the zoo. You know why? He wasn't human. Or at least not fully human. He was closer to the apes. He was a curiosity. He was originally put in a cage, and then they gave him, you know, sort of a freedom to kind of walk around the zoo, roam around the zoo. Children followed him, threw things at him, spat on him, mocked him. I got a question. Where was the church when that happened? You know how Odebinga died? He killed himself. I can't imagine what that would have been like. Hey, you're not even fully human. Get in this cage. Why? Because he was that tall and he was dark skinned. He's obviously not as good as we are. He's not as evolved as we are. We're better than Otabinga. Kindred of Stone Age men found on Antarctic Island. You got, you got seven photographs in this newspaper article. Those are seven, photographs of seven what? Human beings. You know what the scientists of the day said? They're not as evolved as we are. They're the missing links. Look at their appearance. They're closer to the apes than we are. We're better than them. We need to study them. Got a question for you. Were those seven people backwards? No. Did they have a rich cultural heritage? 
You bet they did. Was it the same as the European scientists who wanted to study them? No, it was different, but they had a very rich cultural heritage. Were they as advanced technologically, perhaps? No, but they had a very rich cultural heritage. They were just physically different. So guess what? We need to study them. Those are cavemen. Everybody heard the term cavemen? What are cavemen? People live in caves. Don't overthink these questions, folks. See, we get the idea of cavemen being folks that, you know, that the, the we sort of, that we, the we grunted. We grunt. Me, me wear leopard skin. You know, oh, me, if it fire, oh, burn finger. Uh, me hit wife with club. That would be the end of the cavemen right there, right? First ring I take in my wife with a club, that's the end of Tommy. Tommy does not evolve any further. But, you know, we, the, you know they, they grunt, me build fire, me cook beaver, you know, me kill dinosaur. And so we get this idea that we start, which is funny because the evolutionists say people and dinosaurs didn't walk the earth together. But our common understanding of cavemen are guys that hung around with dinosaurs, which is kind of funny. But, you know, that's, that's the idea. We're sort of backwards. Well, these people were backwards. They were the missing link. And I think there's a problem with that way of thinking. Wheel work? Oh, not no yet. Have not tried new wheel. Other wheels work? Ah, other wheels not work. <laughs> what wheel should do? Wheel should turn around. How professor know? Oh, one time professor see tree. Big storm come. Tree fall. Turn round and round. Roll away. Give professor idea for wheel. Ready to try. Gilligan help. <laughs> What do now? Try to make go. <laughs> oh, wheel not work. No. Oh. Oh. Cavemen. We start out sort of knuckle dragging, trying to figure. And we just, read what God's word says. In the you know the people in the we read the chapters for early chapters of Genesis. People are done. were very capable. They you know they they worked the land. They built musical instruments. They worked with metal. We didn't start out as knuckle dragging. That's all evolutionary baggage. And so many Christians buy into that. Wherever I travel, I have lots of young people come to me and say, "What about the cavemen?" Oh, well, a lot of people live in caves. One of the most famous cavemen in history died not too long ago. Osama bin Laden. <laughs> he lived in a cave a lot of his life. Caves are great places to live. Throughout history, people have lived in caves. But we get this idea that we evolved and came out of caves. That's just nonsense. You get that sort of thinking because you accept man's view of, of, of evolution and, 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 the, and, and you know, the, the anthropologic theories and ideas. You know the Australian Aborigine was hunted and killed in the name of evolution? Australian Aborigines were shot, pushed off cliffs, pushed into swamps. Their bodies were dissected, cut apart, and shipped back to Europe. All in the name of science. Because guess what? The Aborigines weren't human. There was one museum in Europe that prepared a bounty hunter's guide to teach people how to kill and prepare specimens of Aboriginals because they were worthy to be studied. Folks, we're all fully human. We're all one blood. We go back to Adam and Eve. Eve was mother of all the living. There were two people, Adam and Eve, they had sons and daughters. They reproduced, reproduced, and only eight people got on board the boat. The people got off the ark, they started reproducing. God at the Tower of Babel confused the languages and dispersed the people. Which leads us up to a modern question. Can you marry your relation? 
Yes, no, probably, or only after counseling. <clears throat> Can you marry your relation? Answer, yes, you have to marry your relation. If you don't marry your relation, you've not married a human. I will not comment further. You have to marry your relation. Can you marry a close relation? Therein lies the problem. My wife and I were related before we got married. You know, very distantly. We go back to Adam and Eve together. But we came, you know, you know, different parents. So when we got married, no problem. Now, why should I not marry my sister? There are two reasons. One, we'd have very ugly kids. Second, the risk of birth defects goes up substantially because we inherit genetic copying defects from the same parents. So if we marry, the chance of matching those defects is much higher than if I married somebody more distant, which is why closed populations, you know, uh, isolated people groups around the world or the, the, the royal families in Europe where they intermarried a lot, uh, always worried about genetic. Charles Darwin married his first cousin. He was always concerned about the health of his children because before they even understood the genetics, they knew that close intermarriage was a problem. You shouldn't marry a close relation, but you have to marry a relation ultimately because if you don't, you don't marry a human. You got three marriages here. Christian and the Christian, Christian a non-Christian and non-Christian, and the non-Christian and the Christian. Which one of these marriages does God's word counsel against? The one on the bottom. The one on the top, is that an interracial marriage? No, there's no such thing as race. That's a social construct. There is no such thing as race. That's a marriage between two human beings. Is there any biblical mandate against that marriage? Absolutely not. Having said that, should those two people be very cautious about that marriage? Absolutely. They could come from different cultural backgrounds, other you know, family prejudice. There's a lot of social pressures with a marriage like this because our culture continues to divide people by race. We're one race, the human race. There is no biblical mandate against that marriage. If God wants us to be able to go, there's no problem with that. But they need to understand the cultural differences, you know, the, the pressures on their children. There, 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 are, there are cautions they need to understand or cautions they need to listen to before proceeding. There's no biblical mandate. There is, there is no such thing as interracial marriage. I've got a friend who uh, married a very lovely lady from Japan. When he was in the military, he was stationed in Japan, and he married this very lovely lady, and it is so fun to see them together. They are amazing. But they tell the funniest stories about how the first 10 years they were married, they didn't understand each other at all. Because the Japanese culture being different than the culture, you know, that he, he was, you know, where he grew up here in America. And they would be talking about things. And when one would say something to the other, what they would say, the other would interpret totally different. And I'm... I'm Certain, I'm, I'm absolutely certain God wants them together. I'm not saying this, that they shouldn't have got married. But they tell the funniest stories about how they were learning each other's cultures. So there were a lot of things they didn't quite understand about each other. They had some rocky times early on because he would say something, she'd take it the way the Japanese would say. So it's kind of funny. But what a, what a beautiful couple you got. I love them to death. But a few years ago, uh, my friend was going to speak at a church. And... Uh, the conference was set up, and it was about two weeks before he was scheduled to go to this church. So he got a call from the pastor of the church that said, we're canceling the conference. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we just saw your talk on, on racism, and we just came to understand that you're in an interracial marriage. That you're married to a lady from Japan. He said, well, that's public knowledge. He said, well, you can't come here. Because he says, our church association forbids anybody in an interracial marriage to stand in any pulpit in our association. He said, if I let you in my church pulpit, they would remove me from as pastor from this church. So they canceled the conference. 
Think about that. In this day and age, you're married to somebody from another culture, you're in an interracial marriage, you're not even allowed to speak here. What you just did was ungodly. That's nonsense. All people are fully human. We need to get rid of the term race. The term race is a social construct. When the Bible talks about race, it means running the race. It talks about people groups. It talks about tribes and nations. And before we close, I'm just going to show you what the geneticists have finally figured out. Dr. Ventner, who's head of the Solera Genomics, Genomics Corporation, and scientists at the National Institutes of Health recently announced they'd put together a draft of the entire sequence of the human genome. And the researchers had unanimously declared there is only one race, the human race. The evolutionists have finally figured it out. Only took them 6,000 years. There's one race, the human race. How did you already know that? God's word's clear. We're all one blood. There's a biologic fact. All humans belong to one race. But unfortunately, there's a spiritual fact. All humans are divided into two races. And they're running in opposite directions. And with that, we'll conclude. Thank you all very much for coming. Y'all be safe. Yeah, come on with it. That's what I'm talking about. My people. My people. I get it. Yeah. I'm feeling it. Thank you, Dr. Mitchell. Do we have time for a few uh, questions? Time for a few questions? I mean, it's answers in Genesis, so any, any questions? Any yeah, other questions you want to ask? Okay. What's your name? Uh, my name's Timothy. Yeah. Um, you stated that you can't uh, have relations with someone who's uh, closely related to you because it can cause birth defects. Then how can Adam and Eve's children Great question. And, that, and I'm, I'm glad somebody asked that because I just, I've only got so much time I really couldn't get in that. Okay, how could Adam and Eve's children, because, you know, where'd Cain get his wife? The number one question we get at our ministry over the last 20 years is where'd Cain get his wife? Genesis 5, 4, Adam and Eve had sons and daughters. He married his sister. Why is it okay then and not okay now? Simply because at the, at the beginning, the gene pool was perfect. There was no chance of copying defects. And after the fall, over many generations, you slowly have copying defects as DNA reproduces itself. And slowly they get introduced. And I believe it's what Leviticus, either 16 or 18, where God told Moses, now tell the people no more close intermarriage. Because I think Abraham married his half-sister. So in the beginning, you would have to have married your sister. And we've actually got some signage and some stuff talking about this at the Creation Museum. And I got, had a guy approach me about two years ago, just madder than a hornet. I thought, man, I don't know, you know, I'm sorry. What, you know, I don't know what upsets you, but I'll do my best to fix it. He was just steaming. He came to me and just started screaming at me about how this is crazy and that's just wrong. And there's no way Cain married his sister and that's just evil and that's just mean. How could we teach that to children? And that's just so wrong. He said, it's obvious that Cain married his niece. <laughs> think about that. That'll be real funny in about five minutes works once you think about it because somebody else had to marry their sister to get a niece. So, you know, but, but it's a great question. In the beginning, there's no such, there's no problem because there's no copying defects. There's, 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 there's no birth defect risk. Great question. Yeah. So um, I have a question here um, from one of our younger members of the audience who wonders about Christians marrying non-Christians. That, Bible, uh, says, Bible says don't be unequally yoked. Okay. Uh, does somebody over here have a question? Here we go. Okay. What's your name? Petra. Oh, that's right. Petra. What's your question, Petra? Um, did dinosaurs, um, do they have wings? Do dinosaurs have wings? No, dinosaurs don't have wings, but there are certain types of flying reptiles that have wings. 
One particular is called the Ramphorhynchus. It's really cool. It's got like a snout and a really long tail. So dinosaurs didn't, but other kinds of reptiles did. We have a couple questions over here. Yeah. What's your name? Tina. Oh, Tina. All right. So I have a question regarding Abraham and Sarah. Yeah. They were related, close relations. And you're talking about how it doesn't work in terms of their offspring. But yet they were cousins, first cousins. Right. But so see, is that okay if it's a first cousin? Well, the, but the thing is, at that time it wasn't a problem because you got to remember the, the amount of uh, copying defects had not accumulated in the DNA at that point. It wasn't until the time that God was given the law to Moses. He said, now no more close intermarriage. Before that, God knew that there hadn't been enough accumulation of defects to make that a problem. So, so it's just over time, those things accumulated. And when God knew this is going to be a problem if you marry somebody closely related, he said, Moses, tell them not to do that now. Before that, it wasn't a problem. What's your name? Tajiwa. Tajiwa, what's your question? I want to know... Um... Somebody else have a question? Tajiwa forgot. Okay, we'll come back. You remember it, and we'll come back to you. You got a question, young man? So you have a question. What's your name? Joshua Anderson. Okay, Josh, what's your question? Why did dinosaurs die? Why did dinosaurs die? I had several people come up to me after the last session and ask that. I didn't have time to get to it. What happened to the dinosaurs? It's real simple. They died. Okay. I'm, but I'm, why do they die? I'm getting there, boss. Just give me a second. I got to get my joke in first. And never, but what happened? They died. I mean, what happened to the dodo bird? It died. What almost happened to the American bald eagle? It, almost died. it was on the endangered species list. It's off now. Go to the internet and just Google animal extinction. You're going to get these lists of animals that in the last 10 years or 25 years or 50 years, that as far as we know, are now extinct. They existed and now they're no longer alive on earth. We live in a fallen, cursed world. Sometimes creatures lose the ability to continue to survive. And when you look at these lists of creatures that have gone extinct... It is very rare that there's one specific, you know, single reason for animal extinction. For example, if you go to the Natural History Museum in London, they've got a whole exhibit about the extinction of the dodo bird. And there are several big signs about all the different factors that went into that. And it's very complex. You know, whether it's changing ecosystems, changing food sources, changing predator patterns, hunting pressures, disease processes, any number, any combination of these things can, you know, have, a, have an effect on the extinction of a given creature. Over many, many years, the dinosaurs just eventually died out like so many other creatures. I saw one estimate about three years ago that, uh, that either these are secular estimates that, that have suggested as many as like 85 to 90 percent of all the creatures that have ever existed are now extinct. And that's based on analysis of the fossils. I think that may be a little bit, you know, overstating it, but nonetheless, the point is creatures go extinct all the time. But the dinosaurs, since they're sort of held out as such evidence for evolution, you know, the, the evolution said, well, you Christians, you explain what happened to the dinosaurs. Well, they died, just like the dodo bird and lots of other creatures have, and lots of creatures have gone extinct in our lifetime. What's your name? Maya. What's your question, Maya? How many dinosaurs are they once? How many dinosaurs were there? How many? We, we would say there are about 50 kinds of dinosaurs. 
But having said that, we would say like there's the Triceratops kind. And there would be, I think there's like 12 or 13 different variations of the Triceratops. So you've got the kind and you've got the variety within. So if you want to call them variations, I'm I'm hesitant to use the word species because that word gets used incorrectly. So with all the variations, there are several hundred different varieties, but only about 50 kinds of dinosaurs. I think we'll make this our last question, and then Dr. Mitchell will probably be available afterwards if yeah, you want to go ahead and talk with him. So we'll uh, do a, this last question and then a couple of announcements, and then we'll finish up. What's your name? Joseph. All right, Joseph, what's your question? Um, if all the uh, dinosaurs weren't uh, sea, di- sea creatures, how did they get on different continents? How, how did dinosaurs get to the different continents? Yeah. They walked. Because you can give us better. You can do better than that. I'm, but but that, that's the right answer. But what happens is, see, the ark lands, the dinosaurs get off, they start reproducing. But you've got to understand, within a few hundred years after the ark lands, you've got the maximum extent of the ice age. So you're going to have ice bridges and land bridges that are available. And as the glaciers start to recede, you're going to have changing sea levels. So a lot of those land bridges and things that were available at that time are now underwater. Because even most secular scientists would argue that human that uh, that man came to the North American continent across the Bering Strait. I mean, creationists and, and evolutionists both agree with that because they would argue that the sea level was different at that time, and there would have been a pathway across there. So if you actually map it out, we've done computer maps and modeling. We can show how creatures can get to every point on Earth just based on changing sea levels and you know where land bridges and things would have been exposed. It's a good question, but you know they walked because at that time there would have been pathways. But as the glaciers started to recede, as the water levels go up, those land bridges are no longer there, and the creatures that passed are now kind of cut off. Okay, this is the last, last question. What's your name? Chris. Do you think there will still be plesiosaurs in the deep oceans and lakes? Sure there could be. Absolutely. There's, there's no way. We'd have to throw a net everywhere in the ocean and, and, and pull everything up. But there are lots of things, I'm sure, down there that we just haven't found because how big is the ocean? You have to put the net in the right spot. 